This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. With me this week are two fantastic people, Tia Vasiliu. Hi. And Nick White. Hey. Thank you both for joining me this week. I'm so happy that you're here. As always, I'm always happy when you two are on the show. And it's been pointed out to me that you two are never on the show together, and that was never my intent. I just want to say that here, live on the air. (laughs) (laughs) Quote, unquote, live on the air. But let me ask you the question that I ask every week. How have you been? How have comic books been? Nick. Things have been pretty good. It's been a relatively quiet week for me, which I know is really saying something. I don't mean, I, I actually do mean a literally quiet week. Last week, at some point, I went ahead and I think I bit my tongue during the middle of the night and uh, did something (laughs) real fierce. And uh, oh, it was man. a nice coincidence that I also had my yearly physical that week. So I was like, let's let's take a look at this while we're there. And she's like, oh, great. Did you go on the internet? And do you have, have you self-diagnosed already? And I'm like, oh, man, you know me so well. And then Maybe she left. Maybe you made out with was, a succubus no, no. in the middle of the night and the succubus bit you on the tongue. Well, something happened. And um, so she's like, yeah, that's going to take like two weeks to heal. And you really can't do much about it because just naturally eating and talking and everything is just going to irritate it. So it's really only going to heal during the night. So I had quite a few days where it was me eating very soft foods and really not talking that much. Uh, so it was a real exciting time. <laughs> Uh, it was a very exciting time for people who have to coexist with me on a regular basis. They uh, <laughs> they enjoyed that a lot. Mainly the me not talking part. The me eating soft foods really didn't affect them um, that much. I imagine you had to buy baby food or just eat a lot of mashed potatoes and like wet bread or something. You know, right? it was like instead of having toast, I would just eat normal bread, so it wouldn't be like crusty and sharp and and exciting things like that. You know, it was a real. <laughs> Uh, it was a real Nick White struggle, or as most people call it, um, or- ordinary existence. So just shut up, you big baby. <laughs> uh, in terms of reading, I-, I-, I did get some stuff done. I read my first uh, Guided View Native book. Uh, I don't know if many people have actually encountered one of these yet, but uh, the Valiant 8-Bit Adventure was on sale, and so I snatched that up, and that was kind of interesting. I read All of Uncanny Season 2 by Andy Diggle and Aaron Campbell. Uh, I really like this book. I don't know if it's going to come back. I know some people will say, oh, it's not as good as Diggle's other stuff, and maybe it isn't. I think that there's probably some truth to that, but I don't think it's that sure. bad. Sure. Uh, I'm completely caught up on Quantum and Woody. I just read Quantum and Woody Must Die, Volume 4. James Asmus writing, Steve Lieber, who I think also drew um, Superior Foes of Spider-Man, as well as his big image hit right now, uh, The Fix, I think is what it's called. Um, Really enjoyed that. Kind of makes me wonder why we haven't really seen them for like two years, but this is is what Valiant likes to do. Sometimes they'll just like bury a character for like two years and then bring them back. they sort of have a philosophy that if they don't really have a good story lined up for a character, they'll just wait until they've arrived at something they're happy with. So there was that. I am nearly caught up on Green Arrow. I am through Monster Men on Batman. We are making massive headway in terms of DC books, but double shipping, I fear, will always put me in a perpetual state of being behind. Right, right. But the big thing I want to talk about is I caught up on Kill or Be Killed, uh, honestly, I think this is probably my favorite book by the, oh my goodness, why can I not think of, I can only Brubaker. think of Britt Weiser. Brubaker, Brubaker. Phillips, and, and Britt Weiser. Um, yeah. 
it's such a pretty book. Uh, it's such an interesting book. I, I totally get what you're getting at about, like, why has the monster sort of disappeared, like, all the way up through four, and then he sort of makes a reappearance. It's an interesting book. I think in some ways it does fall into the, like, wallowing, directionless, self-loathing, straight white male role or trope or uh, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah. But I sometimes understand that viewpoint, so as much as it is a trope, (laughs) I get it. So, beautiful book, and super interested to see where that goes. Uh, it's just amazing. I, I, I'm waiting to see how long of a break they're going to take between arc one and two, because I, I, I refuse to believe Phillips can probably consistently bang out issue month after month after month. So, uh, w- yeah. what about you, Tia? It was a pretty good week for me. Um, not like Nick, not exactly health-wise. Yeah. I, I'm falling apart piece by piece. Oh no! Um, yeah. <laughs> I keep re-injuring this torn muscle that I have in my leg, and I really should stop like trying to do contortion and stuff on it. Probably, I don't know. I say that all the time. Yeah, <laughs> I have tendonitis in various joints. It's like I'm just a complete mess. Uh, so I actually have to, you know stay relatively still, which gives me a lot of time to read comics, which is a good thing because I had a lot of great comics out um, this past week. I finally have discovered the Riverdale character that gets me, you know, (laughs) like I'm, I am mostly a Veronica, but unfortunately I don't understand what she sees in Archie like at all. So there's that major discrepancy, but with uh, Reggie Mantle, I think, you know, I think that I found my Riverdale soulmate. <laughs> and oh my goodness. <laughs> so Reggie and me came out this week. It was uh, written by Tom DeFalco. Um, it also has Sandy Gerald and Kelly Fitzpatrick on it. And it's kind of following the trope that started in Betty and Veronica that I hated with the dog telling the story. It doesn't make any sense in Betty and Veronica because it's told by Hot Dog, which is Jughead's dog. But in this book, it's told by Vader, which is Reggie's dog. And part of the story is like how they came to be Boy and his dog, which was really sweet. So um, that was a good one. I also read Dr. Afra. That's Karen Gillan and Kev Walker. I'm so excited for this book. It's amazing. It's beautiful. I love Dr. Afra. I love the murder droids. And um, she has a, a graduate school experience, not unlike my own. So we're practically <laughs> twins. <laughs> you have murder droids too? Well, I have a murder cat. Does that count? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, she's pretty bad. She's a bad cat. <laughs> what else? Um, obviously, The Wicked and the Divine, number 24 where there's a lot of abs and also kissing and (laughs) who doesn't love that (laughs) in a a bit of shameless self-promotion I think I'll talk more about motor crush number one which I was able to write up for the Mary Sue this week and that was very exciting Mm -hmm. and um, Nick used my Mary Sue review to torment Brendan Fletcher, which was great on Twitter. Thanks for that, Nick. <laughs> unintentionally, completely unintentionally, but um, I suppose that's what most of my Twitter inter- interaction is. So 
tormenting brendan fletcher yeah it's that specific <laughs> unintentionally yeah. tormenting brendan fletcher that's the only reason i have a twitter account on a private account though on a private account <laughs> it's not very effective tormenting you know I'll, I'll i'll put that out there you know? sure so this is a book by the batgirl team it's babs tar cameron stewart and brendan fletcher and um it's an image books it's it's this really cool uh i don't know futuristic sort of moto racing hot babes with electric pink eyeliner kind of book just the sort of thing that you would expect from this trio and and it's beautiful and so i wrote it up and in what i thought was a fairly non-spoilery fashion but um apparently some disagreed and then um nick decided to retweet the link to the write-up and be like this is the greatest non-spoilery review and i'm like no (laughs) (laughs) Um, in any case, so and here's the thing about it, and the the idea is that there's this world where um, you know moto racing is sort of the hottest sport, and there's an underground circuit where people can take these performance enhancing drugs called Crush, but they're like machine drugs. Somehow they affect the bike, but it's unclear how the bike takes the drugs but the bike can become sure. a you just corner the bike in a back alley with a syringe <laughs> yeah. i can it's stop whenever i want like it's all very unclear how it works but you do see the like negative effects of the drug if you like overdose or if you have um like withdrawals from it and and part of how you see this is that people also take the drug and uh. they like have the same effects I didn't. There's, there's, there's not a it's lot. Just the of, equivalent of someone going into their garage and downing antifreeze and wondering why they have problems. <laughs> don't do that, everyone. Please don't do that. It might look like yes. Kool Aid. I've heard it kind of tastes like Kool Aid. Um, it is not Kool Aid, but it's not Kool Aid. No. Which, no. like, what the hell? Doesn't in Gone Girl doesn't she give herself antifreeze poisoning as part of her plan to frame what what's his name? Anyway, don't drink antifreeze. Don't drink antifreeze, but you should read Motor Crush. It's really good. (laughs) I would argue that the first issue doesn't actually have anything to spoil in it because it's pretty light on plot. But that's okay because it's the first issue. And I think that a first issue's only job is to get you interested in the world. Right. And And so I would not consider any of the details about this drug... Uh, to be spoilers, rather, they're, it, it's world building, and you know, that's all you need from a first issue. It's beautiful and stylish and gorgeous, and was very enjoyable. Very cool. I I was very hesitant about this book. Maybe I'll just try the number one. This is what always happens. I hate the show. <laughs> I hate the show so much. <laughs> well, for me, uh, I didn't read Motor Crush, but I did read a handful of other books, such as Jughead Number Ten which kind of ends the the dating story arc between Jughead and Sabrina the Teenage Witch, and it is adorable, and this book is fantastic, and why aren't you reading it? Uh, Extraordinary X-Men number 16 has kind of been putzing around and doing some weird stuff with alternate universes, and Jeff Lemire's trying to do his thing where he's like, look at all these characters you can care about, and I'm like, I don't care about any of these characters. <laughs> and then the end of the issue happens, and I wanted to die. So, congratulations, Jeff Lemire. Just like Sweet Tooth, at the end, you somehow got me. Um, And, I mean, Sweet Tooth will break your heart in a hundred different other ways, but 
yeah. Extraordinary X-Men, he's still writing this book, so I'm I'm ready for more heartbreak, I guess. This is this is top-notch X-Men storylines. If I'm crying at the end of an X-Men book, you've done your job. Uh, can, that's all I can X-Men say about it. Are there any X-Men books that don't make you cry, though? I mean, it's, it's all that hard with X-Men characters to make you cry. Yeah, I mean, I think the... I'm trying to think of one where I didn't really get emotionally attached to someone. I mean, right now, I'm not feeling it so much for Uncanny X-Men, but that's because everyone's so heartless and awful that there's nothing really to get attached to. For a while, I was very much attached to Psylocke as a character, but somehow Cullen Bunn has made her too hard of a character to be emotionally attached to, oh. and that really bothers me because it's, it's an extreme change of pace from previous writers, specifically Rick Remender, who really dove in and wanted you to die when all the bad stuff happened in that book. Um, he did a great job of doing that. And in this book, every single character has kind of got a chip on their shoulder, and there's no one you can really relate to, even though Psylocke is supposed to be that character. So I'm a little bummed, but nonetheless, I will not go into an X-Men rant right now. Instead, I will talk about the other Archie book that I read called Archie Meets the Ramones, and Paul talked about this a little while ago because it came out a few weeks back. I finally sat down and read it, and it was uh, it was exactly what the title says. I will say nothing more than that because it really was just a fluff book that was kind of a fun little way to get the old-style Archie characters and their band, the Archies, to meet the Ramones through magic time travels courtesy of Sabrina the Teenage Witch, (laughs) which I think is how all (laughs) these books go. It's always Sabrina the Teenage Witch doing something that causes the Archie gang to end up somewhere else. They need to stop hanging out with that girl. What are you talking about? Sabrina's the best. She's great, but boy, does she cause a instigator of all things bad in the (laughs) Archieverse. Yeah, in a couple ways, I think. But I also read Saga 38 through 40. I got caught up on that book. Um, I I feel like we haven't talked about this series in a long time on the show. And I think it's because it's, as we've said a handful of times, this book is always top-notch quality. There isn't much to say because the book, it doesn't detract from its very good like expected story like i expect brian k vaughn and fina staples to deliver me a a high quality book every month and so far for 40 issues they have done that i I don't know what else to say about this book i think that there's maybe some weirdness to be to be said around like the cycle of hope versus sadness in in the series where like every arc begins with this uplifting idea and then you're brought down to this sad moment but that's that's like the narrator of the story foreshadowing a lot of the book and it's expected you get that in every book there's always hope that is met with sadness and like a bad thing happens so that a good thing can happen or vice versa and this book does that very well and i never feel like i'm being played upon like i did when i was reading the walking dead um it's kind of an expected like we're getting more story we're also getting these emotional roller coaster up and downs um this book does that very well i think there's like not much more to be said about it i guess i could keep adding words and then saying there's not much more to be said but really this book is is solid from beginning to end i think i think that we don't talk about it too frequently because a lot of us trade weight that book that's true i i'm i think one of the very few people i know that um read this month to month so nonetheless it's a good book you should be reading saga it's a great go pick up the first trade if you're wrong and you don't like it i'll i'll read i'll (laughs) Send you back the $10. Like it's, I have that much confidence in this series that I will definitely do that. Otherwise, I did read Uber Invasion number one, which is Kieran Gillen and Daniel Geet. And oh my gosh, I love Nazis in a fake universe. What? That's a weird thing to say. Michael. Be, but this book, 
is so incredible. Honestly, I did not think that Kieran Gillen could top what he did in Uber. And Uber Invasion starts, and it is so crushing. Like, the war, World War II is not over. Now, if you don't know what Uber is, <laughs> let me take a step back and to explain to you what I meant by I love fictional Nazis. Uber is a book about the end of World War II and how Germany created these super soldiers that could essentially decimate entire cities with their minds using this special weird power called the halo effect. And the British government finds out how the Nazis are making these these superhumans and they start to create their own and there's this big war and Germany's still trying to take over Europe. Um, they end up defeating, at the end of this series, they end up defeating pretty much everyone in Europe and who's left fighting the war? Germany and America and Japan. And so the beginning of Uber Invasion number one is, I won't spoil what this is, but you may be able to take a guess, is the continuation of the war outside of Europe. And it is this book is so masterfully crafted. Like As I was reading it, I thought I knew it was happening. Every page I turned, it was a totally different thing. Kieran Gillen nails this book, and Daniel Gates' art is top-notch. It's exactly what I expect in terms of horror and realism and rubble and destruction and chaos in a comic book about war. This book is... I've been I've been so excited for this book for the last year, and I'm so glad that it's back. It's it's a fantastic read. If you dig World War II fiction fiction stories or just World War II stuff in general, this is a nice twist. I, I absolutely love this book. I I didn't mean to exclaim that I love Nazis because I don't. I, I love mean, this comic book. <laughs> gotta be careful, man. You don't want to be saying stuff. People could take a sound bite. Next thing yeah. you know, you love Nazis all over the news. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he actually, yeah. in the most recent one, he literally just said, "I love Nazis," so it's going to be real easy to lift. I'll, I'll, I'll pull that out later. It's Thanks, Nick. Be, Thanks. Save that for the one, episode one hundred <laughs> show. <laughs> yeah, Mike Rapin shows his alt right colors. Oh no! no. Uh, let's no. okay. Well, we're just going to move on. <laughs> Comic books come out on December fourteenth, two thousand sixteen. Tia and Nick, what are you both excited for? I'm gonna, I'm gonna start with you, Tia. What's up? Well, I'm excited about the new Hawkeye number one that's starting. Kate Bishop is back, and it looks like it has a pretty great creative team. And um, you know, you can never have too much Kate Bishop. I'm 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 not without hope that at some point in the near future there will be some kind of Kate America crossover because. Of course, the America Chavez solo book is also happening this year. Yeah. So, like, let's just keep. Let, let's keep these awesome solo lady titles up at, up at the top of the list. Isn't this like the third Hawkeye reboot in one and a half years, give or take? I, How yeah. long did Lemire have his run? Was it even a year? No, it was like five issues. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, I think that part of the problem is that the Fraction Hawkeye run kind of languished for a while yeah. towards the end. Oh, yeah. And, and it set a real high bar. Even well, though I did. think Mike would probably tell you that the luster of that book diminished uh, as it pulled the late-end shenanigans. You know, it's just... You have to publish on the regular or else 
the the tone and the beats of your story kind mm-hmm. of like you can't leave them hanging for too long the sparkle kind of does wear off of them and it doesn't Absolutely. help that it was a marvel book too if it was image you could have probably pulled off that sort of you know delay schedule and people would understand but with marvel it's like yeah you're big too. <laughs> find two other colorists and three extra pencilers and finished a job which is not what i would advocate but it's certainly what some people would advocate. I mean, I've I seen actually, books do that. I wouldn't advocate that, but I do think that um, it was a little bit awkward to then rush these other Hawkeye reboot books, mm-hmm. like cr- and cram them up against the end of that Hawkeye. I think that some breathing room would have been nice, and I think we've had that for yeah. a little while because you know Kate's been around in other books, um, you know, and so she hasn't been out of the the public eye and so people are still interested in her and I think that kind of her time has come back to to be doing her own thing yeah this book's going to be really exciting I I'm mostly just happy that it's just her you know they've been doing this Hawkeye duo book for a while and it's this is just going to be the Kate Bishop Hawkeye story that I think a lot of people have been asking for so that's exciting exciting book Nick what about you what are you excited for this week uh, for me, it's it's actually Descender, and this is probably the first time I've picked this book in a while, but it's definitely deserved. Um, this is the beginning of the new arc, which I believe is technically the fourth arc, uh, the third arc of this Jeff Lemire, Dustin Nguyen uh, title, uh, which was called Singularities, and yeah, I probably came down a little hard on it in the past. I won't deny that. I think if you read Singularities in Trade, you will probably be like, what What the fuck was Nick's problem? Honest to God. But mm-hmm. uh, in, in singles, it was a little bit of... Um, the issue structure was largely 80% um, backstory. No, no I, I'd, I'd say... You know what, Nick, let's overly quantify this comic book. Okay, fine, let's do it. 87% backstory, which was bookended by the rest of it um, being modern. So it would start modern, 87% backstory, and then modern again. And Lemire is one of those writers that does backstory better than most. You tend to really care about characters. There's a lot of really touching personal narratives that make you feel more about some of these characters and yeah i think he pulls off backstory better than a lot of writers but that doesn't Mm -hmm. ignore what the arc was and what it was like to sit through in single issues and it's just going to be great to sort of move the story forward now that we've got you know two evil well never mind let's let's assume some people haven't read volume three and i'll leave it at that i haven't me either okay yeah okay i did see a few single issues though and was and yeah Backstory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but pretty. Pretty. What about you, Mike? Well, for me, this week, I am actually excited about a Mark Miller book. Uh, Reborn number three is coming out this week, and I am in love with this story. I am completely taken by it, and I will just fall into my pit of despair um, when it ultimately makes me sad or makes me upset about something but overall like this this story has been really cool i think it's it's pretty lighthearted, um and greg capullo's art is fantastic if you don't if you haven't read this series number one was uh, a woman essentially she i'll, I'll spoils for spoilers for issue number one of reborn yeah. but the the story is an old woman uh passes away and she is suddenly awakens as her younger self where she meets all of the people in her life that she knew that have died um, the one person that she can't find, however, is her husband. 
And in this new world where she's reborn as her younger self, it turns out she is the savior that all the people who have ever died are waiting for to save this fantasy world where people who have died are reborn. And issue number two was some development of story. I won't spoil that, but issue number three is we're actually getting to the quest of the character. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited for where this is going to go. I'm like totally just head underwater in just believing that this is going to be great. Um, and I have full faith in this story. Like, as a person who's read a lot of Mark Miller, I know that he can deliver. So I'm really hoping that this is one of those books that totally delivers and is less gruesome and awful and instead just uplifting and telling a very strong story and i think based on the first two issues we're going to get a strong story that is um very i guess wholehearted and you're going to feel for characters and this this book is just fantastic i i am totally in love with it it's like this and seven to eternity with rick remender i'm just like whatever man it's time to stop being an old curmudgeon and just give in and try these creators again because they've got to be doing something right and so far i have not been displeased so I don't know. Are, are either of you reading these books? I know that I look forward to reading Hawkeye, and I'm I need to catch up on December. I've only read or Descender. I've only read the first volume. So, well, I'm I'm reading Reborn, and I still have to read number two. But my shop um, just went ahead and gave me the Kyle. Is it Kyle Carr Andrews cover for number two? Yeah. And holy or, cow, Harry if Kyle you Andrews, haven't yeah. seen that, it's insane. It's all like black and white, and it looks like it was done in marker. Um, it's really cool. Yeah, that's his uh, style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I like it. I I mean, it's it's Greg Capullo. I mean, I'm sure if the story was borderline, what's what's the one with the supervillain who's basically Superman and he like kidnaps the president's daughter and all that other. Um, oh, I have one? no idea. Oh, you're talking yeah. about uh, Nemesis. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like oh, if the he's story like was evil Iron Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if it was like verging on Nemesis, like Greg Capullo's art might not be enough. But honestly, the story is positive enough and bright enough and not gratuitous enough and and just beautiful. So I'm fingers crossed. Let's let's see how long this stays. I mean, I know at some point Capullo is probably, I believe, going to go back to Batman. So who knows how long this book's got anyway. It might just be like six <laughs> issues. Yeah, but that's true. Take what we can get, I guess. For this week's episode, we have kind of a tough question, or at least maybe a tough question for some people. Some, you know, might like myself, maybe not so much. The question is... What is your favorite creator's definitive work? Which is a weird way to phrase that question because the idea is what is your favorite creator and what is their definitive work? Um, so I think between T and I, we had some ideas and Nick was, we put on the show at last minute and so was kind of struggling <laughs> in figuring that out. But I, you know, let's, let's just start with the idea. You know, I have like a, my favorite creator's definitive work, but I'll we'll start with you, Tia, and then we can move around as we, as we see fit. So... Let's let's hear what your I'm sure very unpredictable answer is. <laughs> I know. I feel like I basically just fangirl over Kieran Gill in like every single episode. So um this is not news to anyone. But, <laughs> sure. Um, you know, I actually think this is a hard question because I think it depends on like definitive in terms of like 
if I were going to introduce someone to him as a creator and say, this is everything you need to know about Kieran Gillen as a creator, read this. Or is it like people sitting around who have read everything and say, this is the definitive Kieran Gillen work. You know what I mean? Like, I think that the audience that you're directing this question toward changes the answer a little bit. Oh, totally, totally. Um, and then, of course, I think that, like, you have to take into account ongoing work. I, like, I know that from what he has said about The Wicked and the Divine, it certainly seems like it's being created uh, with an eye toward it being a definitive work of of his and Jamie McKelvey's in terms of um, just the way he talks about sort of putting every piece of himself into different aspects of it. So that seems like a pretty straightforward answer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that someone who's maybe newer to comics, I would point them in the direction of something more like Young Avengers, because I think that it's still a lot of the like core stuff that you will get from Kieran Gillen in terms of... Um, story in terms of sense of humor in terms of the emotional impact the characters relationships the characters identities uh but in a maybe more approachable mainstream sort of way kind of uh yeah yeah and then you know i think that like karen gillen 301 maybe you hand someone a phonogram volume of your choosing. <laughs> I apparently yes. would choose the wrong one, but I tend to think that the first volume is the is the the one that you should read first. Wait, okay. But when you say the wrong one, and I I know you answered this for me earlier, but I really <laughs> I really need, this needs to be said. I'm just Why imagining is- Tia at the end of um, uh, gosh, what's the Last Crusade? Picking the wrong cup. No one else watches Indiana Jones. Great. Okay. Fantastic. So why is this considered the wrong volume of phonogram as is quote unquote the definitive work? Okay. Well, I mean, this goes back to my uh, qualification that it depends on who this question is aimed toward. I think that the creators themselves say you should start with the second volume of phonogram. Okay. Okay. And I could see why... Some people might like that one better, but I think that in terms of it being like, here's here's everything that you need to know about this creator, I feel like I got a lot more out of the first volume. Gotcha. And so, and what 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 makes you think that this is the definitive work then for them, Um, despite whatever anyone else may say? Like, what makes this book different than volume two or different than, you know, say, like his run on Uber, his run on Mercury Heat or or anything else? Oh, God, I didn't Pull out five or six other books, right? I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I didn't even talk about one of my favorite Karen Gillan books, which is Journey into Mystery, Mm -hmm. because I don't know that, even though it's one of my favorites, I don't know if it's a definitive Kieran Gillen book in the sense that like it was work for hire and I think you know that doesn't mean that it's not awesome it is awesome and, and that doesn't mean that you you don't get a sense of Kieran Gillen as a creator because you do but also I just think that there's something fundamentally more um personal is the wrong word but like you know creator owned work is always just going to be like 
a lot more there's there's gonna be a lot a lot more blood in it and a lot you know what i mean totally oh totally I, and i think i mean i i firmly agree with you on i think phonogram volume one is definitely the the more definitive and in my opinion the stronger book um because there there seems to be a, a clearer path that the story is taking and what it's trying to say and it really established the the, the tone and the feeling that I think Gillen was trying to create with that book, like in, in the world that he was building. And um, I, I know I said this to you before we started recording, but I think it sounds a little bit like a Hellblazer book that was focused on just on like the magic in music. Yeah. Um, but I may be a little biased because I've been reading a lot of Hellblazer lately. So, <laughs> you know, they're going to do a hardcover of all three phonogram volumes and they're having Matt Wilson go back and color the first volume. Oh boy. No way. Yeah. I don't need to spend more money on phonogram books, Tia. We we all need to spend more money on phonogram books, Mike. Okay. (laughs) Well, okay. So I guess, so Journey into Mystery isn't so much definitive because like you said, it's like work for hire, but like, I guess what, what's the difference between that and Young Avengers in your mind? Well, I think that another challenge that Journey into Mystery had, which I mean, in my opinion, speaks to Kieran's talent as a writer that this ends up not really being much of a problem in my opinion is that like half the book is tie-ins okay true you know and so I guess like the thing about journey in a mystery is that it that you know and like then there's a bunch of stuff where I I think it's Matt Fraction's Thor that he kind of like it it's simultaneous it like runs parallel to the story i don't know there's basically there are a lot of of factors that are outside of his control in that story that he has to juggle and i think that while it's like i said i think speaks to his talent that he can incorporate all of that and not really show the seams in a distracting way journey mm-hmm. you know i know that like the way that that Kieran and Jamie McKelvey talk about young avengers is that they were like basically approaching it as though it were a creator-owned book and they also were weren't always intending it to be like a, a closed story like they got to tell the story that they wanted they didn't want to continue that was it gotcha you know what i mean yeah 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 i and you can totally see that if you read that if you read that run in the story it, it feels very self-contained um like there really couldn't be more story to that than what they gave us which is great Nick, what are your thoughts? I mean, before I mean, I could dive into my my deep, deep love sure. of Warren Ellis. But before we do that, let's let's take a, a contrary opinion, I guess. Yeah. And Nick, well, what, what are I mean, your thoughts? Because I know that you're kind of juggling a few different ideas here. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think Tia brought up something that I want to maybe question a little bit uh, first. Uh, so if you wanted contrarian, I guess I can provide a little bit of that. Sure. Um, uh, I, I think Tia is not wrong um, with the idea that it seems like creator-owned works do tend to be more personal or there are less barriers or professional issues that get in the way or concerns from publishers or editorial control. Um, But I think we've probably all seen certain writers or creators that, and I know this seems paradoxical and I know this seems weird, um, but they've actually done, in my opinion, better work um, with pre-existing properties or um, 
um, big two work or, or, you know, mainstream franchises than their own personal stuff. And I realize better is a loaded word and good is a loaded word. <laughs> sure, yeah. I actually I agree with you, I think, on that. I can think of some creators I'd categorize that way. There yeah, are some ab- people absolutely. that I think honestly um, <laughs> need that editorial control or they're able to really bring something to pre-existing uh, characters that maybe... I mean, one one that comes to mind for me, and maybe this is a case of someone whose personal work and their uh, work for hire or big two work or whatever you want to call it, is they're at least on an equal footing, which I think some people would even disagree with, is I think Jeff Lemire's work for hire has been just as good as his his personal work on a lot of levels. And, and maybe that's just because one can't read too much of like Jeff Lemire's like personal uh, stuff without getting like desperately sad and like locking all the doors and turning off the <laughs> yeah. lights. And I mean, if you, if you read Essex County in one sitting, like, please call me. You probably need someone to talk to. But like for me, Jeff Lemire's work on um, Green Arrow for me is, is a very, very definitive work because DC let him walk in the door and they said, this is super embarrassing. This book has been around for three arcs now since the New 52. It's terrible. We're actually thinking about shuttering it for a bit. And they just said, do whatever you want. And in issue one, he literally like destroys everything, kills everyone, goes as back to square one as you can get. And uses a lot of his signature elements of being, you know, solitary, character-driven work, very much inside the character's head, and told a very wonderful back-to-basic story that was totally 100% entirely aided by a relative new penciler at the time, a newcomer, Andrea Sorrentino. And, I mean, I'm a little biased there, uh, I don't know if he would have quite gotten as much praise if Sorrentino hadn't been on the book, but sure. uh, for me, that's really Lemire's signature coming in and really making something his own, and I know that that's not always worked. I know that his time at Marvel has sort of been a little bit spotty, and maybe people point to that as being a reason why. Um, well, it depends that, on the little... book. It really yeah, depends well, on the he book. He doesn't do team books well at all. Like, There's no really good way of trying to qualify that statement or drop it into like a gray area it's very much jeff lemire does not do team books period it was proven at dc he went over to marvel it seems to be pretty proven at marvel um like i give out this advice for free jeff lemire uh (laughs) it's i mean it's simple it's basic maybe it hurts a little but i'm just trying to help i think what you did on justice league united before you left dc left a real uh th- that was a real uh irish goodbye jeff lemire that was just you know <laughs> walk out the door oh uh, gosh that's and, uh, awful it hurt i mean i don't disagree with this either that i think um it's it's a different mindset to write one character um, and and get really deep into their psyche as opposed to a, a group of characters where a big part of what you're writing is the, their dynamic and um, you have to figure out ways to give them the same kind of depth that you would a character that is you're writing solo um, using their dynamic 
in order to give the audience those clues about who they are. And mm-hmm. it's, I, I mean, it's just different skill sets, different ways of thinking. I don't know how you would want to frame that, but. Um, and it's, it's totally different ways of telling a story too. Yeah. I think that it's like being able to grasp one character and tell everything from their perspective is, is a massive endeavor. Like that's really tough to get into one character's head. And maybe I'm repeating everything you just said again, but you know, being able to get into five characters' heads and then try to manage how they interact with each other, that's like a, that's a hundred, 180. That's a completely different way of telling a story. And, and to be able to do both, I think, is very, very tough. I don't think we have a lot of creators out there that are great at both. And I think, and I, I'm sure this isn't across the board true, but I think you'll find that creators that are very much... Um, they have a real career track as being a creator-owned work person, um, especially someone, for example, like Lemire or Kint, who started out with a lot of their solo independent career stuff who comes into um, Big Two Comics or whatever. I think you'll find, at least I've noticed, those people tend to really do better at solo characters versus team books. It seems like almost a lot of like the industry professionals and the people who have been around forever, those are the ones who end up on team books. And that's not a knock. Jeff Johns has been around forever. I'd call him like old guard of the industry, but his Justice League was amazing. It's it's not a bad thing, but... Mm-hmm. I mean, you bring up another really good point too, that um, the, the way that a writer gets paired with an artist it ends up having a big impact on what they can do. You know, if you don't gel with an artist, then they can't envision your script, then it's not going to work. Um, you know, kind of like I, maybe one of the reasons Journey into Mystery isn't as definitive for um, a Karen Gillan work is because it wasn't drawn by Jamie McKelvey, you know? So mm-hmm. these relationships um, that that the artist and the writer has, I think really matters. Yeah, that's that's a that's a killer point. Um, I'm just going to steal the spotlight and I'm going to talk about Warren Ellis for a moment before I pose one more question to you two. Uh, and I, if I had to pick something that I think Warren Ellis, by far, I think at this point, I have to label him as my favorite creator, if only because I read so much of his work and without a question, I buy every book that he's publishing and whether it's prose or not, uh, or prose or comic book or short story or whatever. Um, but, and I think that his definitive works are probably planetary or transmetropolitan, but my, you know, if I had to pick something, I think it's his next wave Agents of Hate, which was a non-creator-owned kind of book that was, you know, using existing characters and kind of made-up characters um, to tell a story about the stupidity of superhero books um, while being published at Marvel. And it worked super-duper well, and I think it, it established Warren Ellis's ability to play on, you know, write a satirical book um, while also driving a really powerful kind of emotional story through some of the characters that are all, um, since they're all kind of rejects characters. And if you haven't read this book, um, I may be giving some spoilers here, but all of the characters were just kind of broken and they got paired up together because S.H.I.E.L.D. as as an entity didn't know what to do. And so they went out to solve the hardest, dumbest problems that people could find. And in their own creative, goofy ways, they end up you know, solving the things, but it's really wild and out there and absolutely hilarious. And to me, this established Warren Ellis as a creator 
um, in my mind because before that I had only read some of his like more serious superhero books where things are dark and gritty and every, everyone's you know got a chip on their shoulder and smoking cigarettes and shooting guns from you know their hip. <laughs> And instead, this book is just wild and, and t- super bright. The, the art in this book is fantastic, and the, the colors are just are really popping. Like it, it feels like your stereotypical superhero book, but it, like the actual content of the story is bizarre. Like I'm really surprised some of the stuff he got away with with that book. So to me, that that feels like a definitive work. But really, I think if anyone you ask who's Warren Ellis, you would say Transmet or Transmetropolitan or or Planetary because those are his like top books that he's known for that to this day people still ask about. And I only say that because I went to a signing for Warren Ellis uh, not this past week but the week before. Humble and brag. The maj- yeah, humble brag. <laughs> Come on, the guy never comes to the United States. I had a chance to see him in New York. I I can't. I got to tell someone, and. Uh, Everyone was asking him questions about Transmetropolitan still, and that book hasn't been published for almost seven years now. And he's done other things that I think are just as great. I think his injection is fantastic. His James think Bond is good. His James Bond's pretty good. I mean, he's done a lot of other good work, but to this day, still people are like, what's up with Transmet? What's up with Transmet? How would Spider Jerusalem deal with today's politics? And <laughs> seriously, Ellis's responses to those questions were just like, I don't know, man. Like, really, Spider lived in a different time than us. <laughs> I mean, Mike, it sounds like you're talking about kind of almost two different things here because you're saying, like, this is the definitive Warren Ellis, but this is the definitive Warren Ellis on this particular genre. Yeah. Yeah. I th- yeah, that's that's totally true. I And I, I think that's something we haven't incorporated into this discussion yet is where do these writers sit on genre? Because maybe they touch a bunch of different genres, but they're really good at one. And... I don't know, like for me, Ellis, I don't think superhero books are his his forte by a long shot. I don't think he mm-hmm. does superhero books well. I think he does, um, he, he knows how to tell a story about a bunch of rejects. Like if you look at all of his books, that's what they're, a lot of them are about. They're about broken people that are trying to come with come to terms with their brokenness. You look at Transmed, Spider-Jerusalem is this, this gonzo journalist that lost himself and is now trying to rebuild things. Planetary is about if I, I haven't read all of Planetary, so I, maybe I'm speaking to this wrong, but Planetary is about a, a bunch of problem solvers that are kind of out in the ether and they come together to solve a bunch of problems. Injection is about a bunch of scientists that create a problem and now they have to fix it. Um, and I, I really love that Shipwreck is even about that to a certain extent, um, his latest book. But yeah, I, I wouldn't say that his Astonishing X-Men run that he did was necessarily a great superhero story i think it was about a bunch of broken x-men characters that were trying to solve a problem like that's that's what this guy writes and it's i don't know if there's a genre for that but i think these types of stories exist in multiple genres um and i i don't know i think he does better in detective noir crime solve or crime solving stories than he does in like super heroics and things like that I don't know if this applies to, you know, Kieran Gillen or to, you know, Jeff Lemire or anything like that, or even Matt Kent, because I think if you look at Matt Kent, for instance, that guy loves telling crime stories or whodunit kind of stories. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely true. If, if you look at his, like, solo work, like Super Spy or, um, why can I not think of the name of the other Mind management detective story? Um, Yeah, mind management too, but he clearly loves stories like that. And then it's it's always fun to see how writers that clearly have their comfort zone or their preference, which usually comes out in a lot of their solitary or or creator-owned work, how they attempt to either 
inject that into their work for hire or how they try to carefully pick their work for hire so that it's more <laughs> leaning towards um, what their natural inclinations are. So if you look at like Ninjak, for example, I see a lot of super spy in Ninjak in terms of like all of the, the gadget breakdowns and how he even draws, Kent always draws or used to at least the first page of every issue was a was a drawing of one of Ninjak's gadgets and he had a little layout and breakdown of all the how all the different elements worked and so mm-hmm. um you sort of got to think oh well you know this is this is really Matt Kent sort of doing a variation on on what he's used to or what he prefers to do um and i i think you'd probably find that's true of a lot of a lot of writers, even though I'm not quite certain how to how to pair Batman and witches. Uh, don't, don't ask me about <laughs> where the connection gets drawn well, there. Sc- but, Scott uh, Snyder is the writer that Nick is connecting yeah. to those two, by the way. Yeah, I don't yeah, read yeah, a lot exactly. of Batman, but I feel like from what I've seen, there's a lot of, um, I don't know, th- an idea of like responsibility to people a sort of like paternal fear of of not being able to protect someone that you know love letting someone down who looks up to you who needs you to take care of them stuff like that mm-hmm. oh sure yeah i would i would agree with that if you want to really look at the whole looking after a child or not being able to obviously that was a big part of killing off robin even though technically uh, a that was spoilers but b that was a long time ago and c <laughs> that was technically grant morrison who did it and then scott snyder had to sort of pick up the pieces and fix grant morrison's mess <laughs> uh, sorry that was still one of the funniest things ever morrison just ends batman inc and he's like all right damien's dead i'm done with my dc work for like 10 years i'll see you guys later have a have a good mm-hmm. time <laughs> yeah uh, um Oh, sorry, go ahead, Tia. Oh, I was just going to say, going back to your question, I I feel like you can see a lot of um, historical research and also, like, myth, I think, in Gillen's work across genres. Yeah, Yeah, that guy, I think all he does is read books and write comic books. I honestly, (laughs) like, the amount of stuff, seriously, the amount of, like, the number of books that he has recommended to read as part of just reading the book Uber right which is one of many books that he's writing is is astounding like easily think i think just from the first uber run i think he mentions easily 20 books that's and that's insane to me like just about this one subject in world war ii trying to analyze you know historical figures and figure out how they would have reacted to this crazy story is mind-blowing like i gotta gotta credit the guy for doing his serious research on this series on top of whatever else he's writing yeah I think it's really interesting to look at what sort of writers are really capable of becoming chameleon-esque in terms of just jumping on a title and adapting to what it's supposed to be and how characters are, I guess, quote-unquote, supposed to be. And and you really don't notice that they're there. And then what other writers basically jump on a book and you're like, well, this isn't like Batman. This is Warren Ellis writing Batman or this is Jeff Lemire writing Batman or, or whatnot. And kind of the implications of that in terms of uh, do we are we more inclined or less inclined to give those writers that rest that sort of control on a character like do we want to call that definitive work or not I don't know I'm just sort of piecing this together in my mind but I think we've all seen where writers jump on a book and we're like I don't really know if this is sort of this character or if it's really 
this writer writing this character the way that they've written everything else and how do we address that i don't know i'm piecing this all uh together uh off the seat of my pants no right no now, so. i think that makes total sense i think there's a lot a, of different things yeah there's a lot of i think there's a back and forth with this right we we ask for we want creators to jump on a book and we say i really want your take on this character um and we i think we expect them to take their unique twists and things that they've done in the past and things that we liked about how they developed other characters or their own characters and somehow apply it to say batman or superman or the x-men or something like that and the you know flip side of that coin is that sometimes creators will jump on a book and they'll do that and people go whoa 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 this is not how x Mm -hmm. character is supposed to act this isn't how this team interacts or this isn't you know the the story that i expect and this is too much too different from the status quo of whatever book and it's like it's it's really rough like there's a very fine line that we expect for these creators to not cross but no one really knows where it's drawn until it's it's crossed it's super funny and it's really fickle and frequently it's unfair but you'll find that i i think a, a really good writer that's a great example of this is there are a lot of things that a lot of readers are okay with, with like Marguerite Bennett's solo stuff or non big two stuff, but then, and and they're perfectly okay with that work. Although maybe some people aren't. And then when Marguerite Bennett gets put on like a big two book and you start to see her writing characters with the same sort of approach and narrative tone and sort of the usual elements that she includes in books, people just get all upset (laughs) nonstop upset and it's like well is this what you asked for is this not what you asked for are you talking about um, girls kissing or other stuff <laughs> oh oh like all of yeah i i would say like i said unfortunately there are a lot of people that are not okay with her bringing some of that stuff onto her big two work although i think those people don't like her altogether so maybe that's <laughs> I, yeah i mean if you don't like if you i think that if you don't like a, a creator's work that they do um without the constraints of of big two you Mm -hmm. i I think it's it's likely that you probably won't like them on the big two books although i do think there's some exceptions like you mentioned earlier i think some creators that they do a little bit better when they have someone to rein them in um off the top of my head i i tend to prefer elish cott's marvel work over his creator-owned work but you know yeah like the idea of a a definitive work versus a creator's definitive statement on a genre through a work are two really different things and um but i yeah you know margaret bennett i'm thinking of her angela particularly um once I, i think she knew that book was being canceled she really just went for it oh yeah i mean yeah yeah, it's fun when that happens too, honestly. And I think sometimes that's when you actually get some of the more, you get a more definitive or authentic work from a writer or an artist is when they know that the book's going to end so they don't really have to worry about long-term prospects. Like Justice League United, um, when when Jeff Parker took over and they pretty much said that book was going to be done, just turned into the absolute nuttiest, zaniest, everything DC has ever come up with is going to be thrown into this book sort of thing. And that felt a lot more like what I know of Jeff Parker from non-Big 2 stuff than a lot of his other Big 2 stuff. But I think it only happened because he wasn't worried about (laughs) the long-term future of a 
now canceled book. I think it's interesting right. how much we're talking about writers. Yeah, I was just going to say when we we interesting started slash this with maybe slightly troubling. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. When I said you know the question was what's your favorite creator's work, I, the first thing that popped in my head was a writer, and I like like that's kind of like poopy um, because th- that that's only half the equation really. <laughs> I mean, except in, you know, some situations, yes, obviously. Yeah, I mean, outside of those like, those all-in-one type of creators, but, like, I think... Darwin nine Cook. Nine out of ten, nine times out of ten, we're looking at a pair or, you know, three sure. or four people that are working on a book together. Um, so if we had to nail down some artists, I mean, what, what are books Absolutely. that immediately come to mind if, you know, put you both on the spot? Don't worry, I've got one. I'm I'm ready. Sorry uh, to tell you, I just took your took the spotlight from you okay. for bringing up that question. No, no, we I and mean, we were talking about it earlier, but I just I I think it's it, it's interesting also that we were talking about it earlier, and then so much of our conversation still was dominated by still. writers. So. <laughs> by writers, right, right. Yeah, writers suck. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. All right, now, now we've cleansed. <laughs> I'm just the palette. kidding. What are, where where are these artists? What are, what are these artists that you're yeah. thinking of, Nick? I'll throw to you because you have you know an idea. Yeah. I think. Jock Green Arrow Year One. Honest to God, when you read that, you get a perfect sense for Jock's like hard, weird, angular, scribbly lines, you know, shoulders that are oddly like super pointy, and like his big goatee are these big, scratchy, heavily inked, scraggly lines. Ugh, I love it. I love it. I love it. Fantastic, fantastic work. And uh, I mean, it's just a perfect sort of taste of either either you like jock or you don't he really is kind of that sort of artist and i think that's a perfect great example of of jock who for me is definitely one of my favorite artists hands down yeah for me I, it's it's tommy lee edwards on the book turf and that's i don't kind know of, it but i love i love edwards yeah so. that's kind of a weird um i think book to pick if only because it was it was a strange image book, and it was uh, it was one of like a it was a genre mashup of you know, vampires and werewolves and aliens, all taking place in the twenties. So like, all of these things are coming together, and it was written by Jonathan Ross, who is uh, not really a comic book writer so much as a British television host. And <laughs> so if you oh right him if okay. you've ever yeah. watched any you know BBC quiz shows or talk shows you've probably seen this guy he has a beautiful accent um, in comparison to my terrible American accent and uh, he he his writing is is pretty pretty good I mean he he very much embodies the um, I know I'm talking about the writer what a piece of trash I am uh, he embodies <laughs> the like 60s style of like telling and not showing but. That being said, Tommy Lee Edwards took so much of this book and made it his own. There were pages where there would be tons of dialogue, but in between of those blocks, he was drawing very intricate, thick lines showing you exactly what was happening. Like there was the narration describing, and then you would see these little panels that of just beautiful detail and color work and and heavy inking and Jonathan Ross you know despite all of his writing would leave Tommy Lee Edwards with these monstrous two-page spreads that would have 
a ton of action and like just beautiful sil- or like layouts of characters where he where Edwards would have the ability to just draw crazy aliens to mobsters to very horrifying looking vampires and um you know and then of course all of the the normal people are dressed in like you know 20s suits and like flapper dresses and so the characters were all very distinct and his work I don't think I've seen him do anything better than that book like honestly I think this is the best the best work that he had ever done and it was at image just this one-off five issue miniseries it's to this day it's one of my favorite books um, just for, for the art alone and so despite Jonathan Ross being great and whatever um, Tommy Lee Edwards to the to this day is one of my favorite artists and I always look for the stuff that he's doing I've bought multiple variant covers just because he his name was on the cover um, he's he's absolutely fantastic what about you Tia I feel like so many of my favorite artists are really um, cover artists, and so it's hard. I think that's fine, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, there, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, because sometimes a cover can define a book. Oh, you know? yeah. It's okay to like Mike Mignola. Like, that's... <laughs> yeah. Hey. I know he's not super popular, hey. but... No. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I have a whole spiel about Mike Mignola's art and hellboy i hope it's positive it's it's amazing well shall i shall i uh i just so um you know his style is very graphic and linear and it calls to mind um a woodcut tradition which is Mm -hmm. and, and he does this in two really important ways one is if you look at his layouts his panels are always square and they always have a border which is what you w- would see in in woodcuts uh that's how you make a woodcut you you know so um i it's a subtle thing but it is really important in terms of hailing that technique and then the other thing that he does is he has those really large areas of black ink to kind of give volume and and shape to his otherwise like pretty pretty flat uh, drawings and yeah. you know that's the that's an, another technique that that you see in woodcuts and woodcuts call to mind like Grimm's fairy tales and that sort of um, early modern European kind of story folklore uh, and you also think of Japanese woodcuts which mm-hmm. have a sort of exoticism t- uh, to them at least in in the western tradition and those are two really uh, central themes in Hellboy the idea of fairy tales and myth and exotic things and so um, I I always wonder if that's intentional hmm. or if that's just his style and it is a really happy coincidence We'll have to have him on the show sometime and ask him. <laughs> Let's do that. And then he yeah. like he was going to quit doing comic book art and make watercolor paintings, which is a totally different style that I don't associate. Have you seen any of them? No, I haven't. Have you? Ha- yeah, I've seen one or two. I think this will shock no one, but it's not a, like, he's not reinvented himself in a massive, massive, like, <laughs> 180 or anything. Like, I see. When you, like, I, 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 like, sort of steeled myself for something like, like this is my like this is my real new period of work now and it was it's not a huge variation on a theme i guess you could say it's pretty um so the early hell it's pretty within what you would expect yeah it's it's not a bad thing (laughs) yeah it's good it's good i mean uh it still made me 
kind of sad and I was like can we just keep doing what you were doing like I realize you want artistic growth and whatever but that's overrated and can you just keep look just pop open some Hellboy wine and just chill (laughs) yeah (laughs) but in terms of cover artists there's a journey and a mystery cover that Stephanie Hans did and it's Leah sitting um in in a hand holding a cup and it's like so heartbreaking if if you have read that issue and know what's going on at that moment in the story and so poignant and beautiful um and it's funny I I was um talking to Stephanie Hans and she was saying that the covers that she thinks people are gonna like and she makes a bunch of prints for for to sell at shows are never actually the covers that people ask her for prints of oh no way Mm. but I think this is when okay so I would call this a definitive Stephanie Hans cover. I will have to find that. I'll, I'll try to put some of these in the in the show notes just so that we have them, because I think you know we can talk and talk and talk about writers, but really you got to see the art. <laughs> so like, Absolutely. of course we pick the worst medium to talk about art, but um, I will post some links in the show notes for anyone who's interested. Because I mean we could we could even dive even further than this and say you know what are the you know colorists that we like, what are the inkers that we like. Um, then we're really getting into the nitty gritty of things, <laughs> I have an and inker. we're just gonna. We're just talk about yeah. Oh, you do have an inker. I do. Yeah, I. I have a letter. We're just kidding. I'd have to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> Paul does. Paul would Paul tell would you. Tell Paul has you. a favorite yeah. letterer. Yeah. <laughs> um. No. No. If you look at Michael Walsh's inking, it's just it's so beautiful and dynamic. I really love it. Okay. Okay. I. I. What, what books would I would I know him from? He did Secret Avengers, and actually, he did. Um. I think relatively recently, a Hellboy in the BPRD. I can't remember which year series, speak, but just speaking of Hellboy. And he's going to be doing um, an, a new Archie book coming up in the new year. Oh, okay. He's such a sweetheart. I, uh, when I, One of the reasons why I really like him, other than his amazing inking, is that he draws women with realistic bodies. And I was complimenting him on this, and he like pulled out a piece of scratch paper to like quick, quickly give me a tutorial on how to properly draw Spider-Woman's boobs. It was amazing. <laughs> oh, I hope you have that piece of paper in your cherish. I don't. It. I didn't. I did not ask him for to, if I could have it, but it is a cherished memory. Gotcha. Very cool. I think if I had to pick an inker, I would go with Dexter Vines, but that's because I'm really biased about the work that was done in Civil War, the original Civil War. Oh yeah. His his inks on top of Steve McNiven's art, like is it's day and night. If you see Steve McNiven with another inker, you can totally tell that like it's a to- almost a different art style just dexter vines ink i remember when I, I saw him i met him at c2e2 a couple years back and had him sign my civil war number one and i was like dude you have no idea how much i care about inks now <laughs> oh that probably made his day because i mean i really hope it did because he also does art on top of that but he does he did inking on that book and it just it opened my eyes to inking like that's yeah. I, I love him for that I feel like inking, lettering, color, these are all things that when they're when they're done well, they'd really disappear into the book, which is a shame. It's like you you either only notice them when they're bad or when they just are so spectacular that they slap you in the face with their amazingness. Right. right. And that's basically Elizabeth Brettweiser for me. That's like her colors are just you can't ignore them, honestly. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. Fade out, uh killer be killed. Jeez. Yeah, it's very, uh, very powerful stuff. And I don't, I don't know what I would say would be her definitive because what's so fascinating, and I, I think this is something I've only recently appreciate, appreciated, is the color palette of Killer Be Killed versus the color palette 
of um the fade out is so night and day it's completely different and this is not a knock against dave stewart because i love dave stewart and i love him two bits but like he really loves like seven colors and francovilla (laughs) is the exact same way I've joked before about like Francovilla's computer software must be broken and only function palette. in brown, orange, yes. and brown, orange, and black. If you're listening, Frank, we love your color palette. Don't it's always that's the, the thing. Same, I though. love it. It's fun. Well, like I'm but reading it's... his Moon Knight, and it's exactly the same as his uh, uh, Black Mirror that he did with Scott Snyder. <laughs> like it's the same thing as Black Beetle, but that's and and not, color not. It's is great. A very sophisticated. Yeah. No, it is. It's refined. But, uh, I, yeah. But I think that's one thing I noticed about Brett Weiser is in the, in a very, like I said before, a very chameleon-esque sort of fashion. The color palette for, for those two big, you know, Sean Phillips penned uh, or um, drawn works is just so different. It's unbelievable. Totally. And it really makes each one of the works sort of a singular, you know, individual thing and not just, oh, here's another... Here's another Brubaker uh, Phillips collaboration because they call got that joints. big deal with Image. It's a mm-hmm. it's a Brubaker Phillips joint. That's what <laughs> that's what I'm calling it. It's it's more. Sure, I mean, sure. and at this point, it's Brubaker Phillips and Brightweiser joint because when is she and not on those be. books with those yeah. two? Fantastic work, honestly. If you're not paying attention to colorist people, you really got to get on top of that. It's because they they will change books. They and they really do change books. If you if you look at books that from that change colorists at all, which is pretty rare, you can see a, a distinct difference. I think going from uh, they changed ink colorists in the middle of Invincible at one point, and it was like a totally different book in terms of just like emotional feeling, which is what to me all the colors does. And we and we covered this on another episode about why colorists are so important. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's really really bizarro to see like how much of an effect a colorist can have on a book um, when they're doing something that you probably don't even notice, just because colors are just part of the comic book. And I think this all really goes back this discussion of colorists, this discussion of pencilers, inkers, letterers, editors, uh, really goes back to the whole root of why when we talk about a definitive work for a creator, you don't frequently see um, big two. Um, collaborative heavy titles falling into this category is because there are so many different pieces that have to fall into place and for it to be a definitive work all of these pieces have to fall in perfectly yeah absolutely perfectly and i hate to say it but when when it becomes a collaborative work the chance that one person sort of lets you down and and you can't say that that's your definitive work or that's true to your essence um it just it, it just drops off it ceases to be such do you think that there's something to be said for creators who have flexibility and can adapt to maybe a not ideal working relationship with someone in the team versus someone who's like this is me this is what i do you guys can all Mm -hmm. just work with it or the book's gonna suck well i've always really loved the collaborative element of comics uh, with the books that are collaborative because now it's it's you fighting against editorial fighting against deadlines dealing with all these other people you have to work with and so i always i always try to give as much as they don't need my help or my my assistance i always try to give big two books or or deadline driven big team collaborative heavy books uh you know a tip of the hat because there's so much work going into that and so it's like every group project nightmare that you ever had to deal with in school but 
once a month. Except unlike most of mine, it's not me like turning off my phone and just saying, I'll, I'll do all of yes, it. Yes, okay, I'll put I'll your name on it. <laughs> yeah. Just all shut up. <laughs> um, on Monday, I will give you the note card with what you need to say. Yeah. Just say it when I give you the sign, okay? All those times when your teacher told you that it's important to develop this as a real world skill they were right they were, right <laughs> they were talking about it's important books. to learn how people will let you down on a frequent <laughs> regular basis thanks for listening to the i read comic books podcast this episode was produced by me mike rappin with editing by xander riggs special thanks this week to tia vasiliu and nick white The music in this episode is brought to you by Infinity Shred. You can find Infinity Shred at infinityshred.com, as well as on Bandcamp at infinityshred.bandcamp.com. If you enjoy the show, tell someone about it. Write us online. Write to us. Each person you tell about the show and each rating you give lends a little more exposure to this show and helps us grow. It's also a great way for us to get feedback about the program we create every week for you. Or if you're looking to say hi, you can email us at ircb at destroythesive.org. And if you want to talk comics with us, find the I Read Comic Books group on Goodreads. We have a monthly book club that we feature on the show, and we have regular threads about what comics we've been reading. If you want your thoughts on the book we're reading to be read on the show, make sure you join our group and comment. You can ask us questions and comment on each episode of our show on our subreddit at ireadcomicbooks.reddit.com. The entire podcast team is on Twitter, and you can follow the show at IRCB Podcast. But a great way to experience the podcast, including our back-issue bin of episodes and our weekly pull-list posting, is to visit our website, ircb.us. Until next time, from all of us here at the podcast, thank you for listening. I just have Moana songs stuck in my head. I have not seen that movie yet. It's good. It's very good. Like I'm, I had an argument last night that I think it's it might be it might have better music in it than than Lion King, but that could just be me. I I don't really have a pony in that race. Uh, you aren't you aren't Disney obsessed like all the other '90s kids. <laughs> I'm Disneyland obsessed. Oh, okay. Okay. But the I've m- only been there. Disneyland, that's the one in California, right? Yes. Okay. I've never been to Disneyland. I've been to Disney World, but... I think Disneyland is superior because, first of all, fuck Florida. Second of all, <laughs> there, Disney World is too big, and so you're too overwhelmed by choice, and by so you, by definition, leave feeling disappointed But because um, you like, couldn't do everything. But Disneyland is the perfect size to do everything in two days and then like even some things more than once, so you like can leave Disneyland feeling reasonably satisfied. I see. Interesting. Maybe if I ever make my way out to California, I will go there. Yes. Also, it was the first one. So it's the real one. Ah, I see.